0: passion for God, and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning uh, again. It is, it is great to be with you uh, this morning as we begin um, really a, a new chapter uh, uh, in our, our congregation's life as we continue uh, following what God has for us as a congregation. Today, um, we are going to be going through the first uh, few verses of the book of Philippians. And so, uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 3 through 11 of that of that book. Um, and, we begin our time uh, in, in this text, I, I just felt like it was a, is appropriate for us to look at this passage uh, today, today being our first day in this new facility, because it is uh, a text that, that really talks about the importance of life in the local church, and specifically, not just life in the local church, but the, the importance of relationships, the importance of, of fellowship in the local church. You see, Scripture oftentimes describes the local church as a family, or more specifically, it describes it as God's family. And in the first few centuries of the church's existence, it was the community of the local church that was actually the key to uh, encouraging Christians to endure in the impossibility uh, of hard seasons of persecution or of abandonment from family or, or a number of the different things that people faced. And many of us can feel the same desire for genuine relationships, a desire within each and every one of us to not just know people, but to actually know people, to not just fellowship with each other, to not just go to church with one another, but to actually know each other, to be a community. And I think that in our modern day, uh, our, our day and age that, that has privatized religion, Uh, the the, the culture and its technological advancements uh, have actually decreased our connections with one another, our relationships with one another, and we're left with something that's a little shallow. And this text tells us one of the keys for us to have deep lasting, gospel-centered relationships with one another. And so as we begin our time in this facility, as we begin this new chapter in our congregation's life, it's important for us, I think, to just pause. It's important for us to remember what it is that God has called us to do, who it is that God has called us to be, to, to build new relationships with others and to strengthen those relationships that already exist. And that's what I want us to explore this morning in Philippians Philippians is a a powerful letter. It's a letter written to a small church that Paul started 10 years or so before he wrote this book. The church was known throughout the early church for being a very, very generous church. It was very, very sacrificial in its commitment to to give generously to other churches uh, in the early church um, uh, Roman Empire. And it was a church that was known for its vitality. It was a a life-giving church. It was a very healthy church. And, And Philippians is actually one of the only letters in the New Testament that Paul writes that it isn't immediately clear what Paul is writing for. Every other letter, it seems like Paul is writing and saying, hey, you have this problem. Here's the solution, or this is what I need to address. And Philippians is just an overflow of joy. It's an overflow of joy for this church that has partnered with him in the gospel up to this point. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Paul's prayer, verses 3 through 11 of the first chapter. These verses that are written to the church in Philippi uh, tell us Paul's gratitude for the, for the Philippians, Paul's thankfulness for the Philippians, as well as a petition for them, a specific prayer, as we just read, uh, a specific prayer for them as well. And now as we go through these verses, I think that it's my earnest desire that we will be comforted as well as challenged as a church into deeper and more significant, more genuine, more lasting relationships with one another as a church body. Indeed, if there's only one thing that you take away from this morning, I hope it is this, the key to genuine fellowship in the local church, the key to genuine fellowship. Fellowship in the local church is the centrality of the gospel and a growth in love. It's a centrality of the gospel and a growth in love. The key for each and every one of us to experience genuine fellowship in the church is to keep the gospel central in our relationships as well as to grow in love toward God as well as toward one another. That's a universal truth. It doesn't matter where your church is found. It doesn't matter if it's here in northwest Iowa or if it's on the other side of the world in the Sudan. For a church to have genuine relationships, it needs to have a a focus or a commitment to the centrality of the gospel in those relationships as well as to abound in love. This is what enables the church to transcend economic differences, racial differences, theological differences. If we are committed as a church to the centrality of the gospel and to grow in love, then our relationships with others in the church will grow as well. We live in a culture that has largely privatized religion, and, and I think that's unconsciously crept into the church as well. And so it's my hope that this morning this text stirs or even convicts us uh, a desire not just to build relationships, but to build relationships centered in the gospel. As we approach God's word, let's pray once more. God, we thank you for your goodness to our congregation. And while we are continually grateful for your physical provision for us this morning, we specifically want to thank you for the unbelievable ways that your spirit is at work in the lives of this church. God, I thank you for each and every person that is here this morning, whether it is their first time or their hundredth time with us. And as we draw near to your word, We confess that you alone know what each and every one of us needs to hear, and so we boldly ask that you would be the one who speaks to us. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would speak through the timeless truths of scriptures to address our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, please follow along as I read aloud Philippians 1, starting in verse 3. One thing that I love about Paul's uh, letters uh, and preaching about them, preaching through them is, is how easy it is to see the structure. It makes it a little easier for me to, to, to follow the structure. And this, this text is really just split into two parts. First is verses three through eight, and that's Paul's prayer of gratitude, Paul's prayer of thanksgiving, and then verses nine through 11, or Paul's petition, his specific asking for the church. And so let's look at those each individually, starting with verses three through eight, where Paul gives us this charge. This is what Paul tells us in these first few verses. Make the gospel fellowship, make the fellowship of the gospel central in your relationships with other Christians. Make gospel fellowship central in your relationships with other Christians. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he is imprisoned in Rome during this time. Paul hasn't seen them in years, and yet they're frequently on his mind and vice versa. They're, they're frequently thinking of Paul as well. Apparently, the church in Philippi, as Paul is writing this letter, has heard about Paul's imprisonment i have heard that Paul is in is imprisoned, and so they're so torn up about it. They're so distraught that Paul is in prison that they take a special offering for him, and they send it to Rome to give to Paul. One of their church members, named Epaphroditus, is the one who brings this offering to Rome. You see, in the Roman Empire, for those who were placed under house arrest re- relied entirely on the care of their friends and families to survive. You would be imprisoned, but you were still responsible to take care of yourself. And so this gift for Paul is an unbelievable gift to Paul. It is an unbelievably timely gift that that Paul receives from the church in Philippi that meets his needs at this moment. Consider briefly just three reasons why Paul is responding to the church in Philippi, and he tells them why he's thankful for them. These verses tell us three reasons. First, in verses 3 and 4, Paul thanks God for the Philippians because they are a source of joy. They are a source of joy. He says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Paul has constantly, frequently been praying for the Philippians, and his prayers are always tinged with joy. Verse 8 also reveals Paul's great love for the Philippians, the, the reason why his prayers are tinged with joy. It says this, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul loves this church with the very love of Christ. Think about that. So great is his love for them, that he actually calls God as his witness to this genuine and deep love. He is unbelievably thankful for them. They are a source of constant joy for him. Why? Why are they such a source of joy? Why does he have such affection for them? Is it because they sent him some money? Some people believe so, but I don't think the context of Philippians allows for that. Philippians 4 tells us this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and says, I I am so thankful for the gift, the financial gift that you have given to me, and yet I'm content no matter the circumstance. And so it doesn't really follow that Paul's joy abounds, Paul's joy overflows for this church simply because they gave him a gift. There's more to it. In fact, it seems like he's more thankful for their their hearts in the church in Philippi. And that's what we'll see here in just a few moments, that this church has shown time and time and time again through their great sacrifice, through their great love for Paul and for other people, for the church that is the cause of Paul's joy. They have stayed by Paul through thick and thin, even when he is imprisoned, even when he is shamed by his imprisonment. They stay with Paul. They are a people who are committed to the gospel at home. They are a people that are committed to the gospel being spread through Paul and through others to the ends of the earth. They are a people that have genuine gospel fellowship with Paul. And so Paul thanks God for the Philippians because they are a source of joy. They are a source of deep, lasting joy, a joy that isn't just because they're easy to talk to, A joy that isn't just because they come from a similar background, but because of their co-sacrifice in the gospel. And before we continue, let's just pause and consider. What gives us joy in our relationships? What gives us joy in our relationships, especially in the church? Do we find joy in our relationships with others because those people have kids that are the similar age as yours? or because that person makes you laugh, or because you both like the same sports team, or at the very least, you detest the same sports team. Now, those aren't necessarily wrong or bad things. They're good things, especially if you detest the right sports teams. But for our joy and our fellowship and our relationships to be truly Christian, to be truly genuine, the roots must run deeper. And that's what Paul expresses in the next verses here in this text. First, Paul thanks God for the Philippians because they are a constant source of joy. Second, Paul thanks God for the Philippians because of their partnership in the gospel. Because of their partnership in the gospel. Note verse 5. Because of your partnership, and I put the Greek word here on the, on the slide for you, koinonia, we're going to come back to that, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Again, notice verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart because you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, here's something that doesn't immediately stand out to us in the English, which is why I threw those Greek words up there. The word partnership in verse 5 and the word partaker in verse 7 have the same root word. They both have this root word that is oftentimes translated as fellowship, and it's found frequently in the book of Philippians. It is an immensely important word in the New Testament. It's commonly translated as fellowship. Now, when I grew up, I grew up in a very old, very beautiful Presbyterian church in southwest Iowa. The church had been in a decline for about a decade, uh, for the decade and a half that my family uh, attended that church, and I don't think there was any correlation to us attending and the the, um, uh, decline happening, but in in the basement of this church, there was this massive room called the fellowship hall. It's a massive room called the Fellowship Hall. Its size was really a testament to the glory, uh, the heyday of the church back in the day. And yet now, when I was growing up there, it was a cold, stodgy room that was in disrepair. And for the longest time, when I thought of the word fellowship, that's what I thought of. I thought of something that was cold, something that was uninteresting, something that was a relic of a bygone age. I thought it was something that wasn't all that interesting, something that you really could do without, and something that the church didn't ask anything of you for. So what comes to mind when you think of fellowship? When you think of the word fellowship, what comes to mind? Perhaps you think of coffee times before or after the service. Perhaps you think of standing around talking, catching up on life with others. Perhaps you think of other times inviting your neighbors over for a meal, regardless of whether they're Christian or not. Oftentimes, the word fellowship for us means friendship, and it means very little more than that. But this is a stark contrast Than what this word meant in the first century. One commentator's description I think is very helpful. I just want to read this for you. In the first century, the word fellowship commonly had commercial overtones. If John and Harry buy a boat and start a fishing business, then they have entered into fellowship, they've entered into a partnership. The heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Both John and Harry put their savings into a fishing boat, now they share the vision that will put the fledgling company on its feet. Christian fellowship, then, is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. There may be overtones of warmth, there may be overtones of intimacy, but the heart of the matter is this shared vision of what is of transcendent importance, a vision that calls forth our commitment. That is what Paul is Describing when he thanks the he thanks God for the the Philippians and their partnership in the gospel, for their fellowship in the gospel. It is a, a partnership, a fellowship, a commitment to that same gospel from the first day until now. Paul is thinking back to the start of the Philippian church, back in Acts chapter sixteen, when it met in Lydia's house with a Philippian jailer, and he said he's thanking God for their partnership in the gospel. He's not just thanking them for the good times, as good as they may have been. He's not just thanking God for the laughs, as, as funny as they may have been. He's thanking God for something that is infinitely deeper. He's saying that they are committed to the spread of the gospel, and they have been continuing to be committed to the spread of this gospel to this day. You see, Paul is overflowing with gratitude, not overflowing with gratitude because of the, the good times watching the game. He's not overflowing with gratitude because of the great meals that they had together, their newest or their lively discussions on the newest movie that was released or whatever the ancient equivalent of that may be. Paul is expressing gratitude, even though I'm sure he had plenty of good times with them to remember, to, to fall back on. What Paul is, is thanking God for What matters most to Paul when he speaks of their fellowship isn't just warm feelings, but a singular focus and passion for the gospel. So, what of today? What of us? What marks our relationships as a local church? What is the content of our conversations before or after the service? Take a moment. Consider. When is the last time that you had a conversation concerning the gospel with someone else in our congregation? When is the last time that you encouraged someone from Scripture in our congregation? Would Paul be able to say the exact same thing to our congregation as he did to the church in Philippi? If you've ever been on a mission trip, you likely have experienced a taste of what this fellowship is that Paul describes. Uh, it's extremely common for special bonds to, to form on mission trips, uh, relationships to be formed during those times that can just make you feel like you are just connected with people, that you are the best of friends with these people, even if you just met them just a few short days before. And you may be wondering, well, why is that? And I think that part of the reason is, is because there's a singular focus. There's a singular focus on those mission trips. There's nothing that draws people together quicker and faster and and more steadfastly than a, a shared vision, and specifically on a mission trip, and specifically what Paul is referring to, a shared commitment to the gospel, a commitment that costs something. Why is it that the centrality of the gospel is important for us, is crucial for us to have genuine relationships with one another in the local church? It's because nothing deepens our relationships with other people quite like a shared commitment to the gospel. Nothing deepens our relationships with one another quite like a shared commitment to the gospel. Nothing will cultivate those relationships quite like partnering or fellowshipping together for the sake of God. Of the gospel. Let's consider one final aspect of Paul's thanksgiving for the Philippians. Paul thanks God for God's faithful work in them, for God's faithful work in them. Note verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here, the heart of Paul's prayer of thanksgiving is ultimately not about the Philippians at all. It's actually about God. It's gratitude to God for his faithful and continual and sure work in them. The reason why this church brings Paul so much joy, the reason that they, why they are such partners in the gospel is not because of any resolute commitment on their behalf, but because God is faithful. Because God is faithful to, com- to, to finish the work that he has begun in them. When I was in high school, I I helped start uh, a ministry for at-risk teens in my hometown. And when we started this ministry, we picked a a theme verse for the ministry. It was a verse that I quickly committed to my uh, memory. And uh, I actually found a a photo of what I looked like in high school, but I I didn't show it um, here because I don't want to distract you uh, with what I looked like in high school. But I can show you later if you'd like. Uh, but, But the verse was this verse. It was Philippians 1, verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, or the day of Jesus Christ. Paul thanks God for the joy that the Philippians bring him. And years ago, when I was in high school, this was a a powerful verse. It was a, a crucial verse for me that no matter what happened, through the, the ups and the downs of my life, no matter how broken my life may become, no matter how messy my life may become, God is faithful to bring to completion the work of salvation that he has started in his children. And when Paul is expressing gratitude to this church, this is the heart of that thanksgiving, a thanksgiving for God's faithful work in them. So in our conversations with one another, let's be intentional. Let's be intentional to delight in God, to share what we have learned from his word with one another, to join in praying together with one another, for one another, for the spread of the gospel in our community and to the ends of the earth. Let us be committed to spurring one another on, to love and obedience, to growing in self-sacrificial commitment to the gospel, These first few verses charge us to make the gospel fellowship central in our relationships with one another. And after that prayer of of thanksgiving, Paul transitions to a petitionary prayer. He, He begins to ask God, or his prayer requests, to God for the Philippians in verses 9 through 11. And sometime this week, what I encourage you to do is to take some time and just note the content of your prayers. Note the contents of your prayers for yourself and for others, and then compare them to this prayer here that Paul offers for the Philippians. Now, uh, Let me be clear. I, I'm not disparaging any type of prayer whatsoever. Scripture tells us To make all of our requests known to God and that includes all of our requests every night while I am praying with Silas I ask him what he wants to pray for and he will say lots and lots and lots and lots of vehicles (laughs) Let me tell you There are only so many ways that you can pray for cranes and excavators and backhoes and payloaders without being flippant in your prayers But God cares about those prayers so I'm not disparaging any type of prayer, but if our prayers never reflect the type of prayer that we see in verses 9 through 11 here and found in other passages of Scripture, then we're missing the mark. And so here we see another key to genuine fellowship in the local church, and that is this. Pray that you and others would abound in gospel love. Pray that you and others would abound in gospel love. Paul's prayer here is is astonishingly simple, and yet it's unbelievably rich. Let's unpack this. uh, Let's work through this briefly. Uh, Again, verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here, notice first that Paul prays that the Philippians would grow in love. Notice that Paul doesn't give a qualifier or an object to that. You would think that in this letter, in this letter that speaks to relationships and unity in the church, that, that Paul would, would specify that. He would give specifics. He would say, you know, you need, you need to abound in love toward those types of people. You need to, to abound in love with those people that you don't really get along with. But he says nothing of the sort. He just leaves it blank, and I think he does so intentionally. Genuine fellowship, genuine relationships with others, they need a, a growing love, not just for one another, but also a growing love for God as well. First John reminds us that a love for God must be displayed by a love for others, No matter how great, no matter how wonderful this congregation in Philippi may have been, there was always an opportunity to abound in love more and more. Now, this love that Paul is describing is not just an emotion, it's not simply an affection, but it's a commitment. It is a commitment to a self sacrifice that's described in the Philippians commitment to the gospel to their partnership in the gospel in verse 5. It's an other-centeredness that is seen, as, seen in Christ, as Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2. It's a petition that the Philippians would live out the full effects of their faith toward God and one another, that they would live a life worthy of the gospel, as Paul says later in Philippians chapter 1. Now, this love may not have an object, but it is qualified with a second petition in verse, in verse 9. He says, not just that they would abound in love more and more, but this love would be with all knowledge and all discernment. Paul is not simply asking for an increase in sentimentalism. He's not simply asking for a wishy washy Beatles all beetles-all-you-need-is-love type of love. He's saying that true gospel love is coupled with a growing knowledge and discernment. Well, we might be saying, well, what type of knowledge? Does Paul really have anything in mind? Well, I can assure you that Paul doesn't have in mind a growing knowledge of sea turtles or anything like that. What Paul is focusing on is a head and a heart that are committed to growing in love and in knowledge of God. Our heads and our hearts must be connected together, coupled together to increase in knowledge of God to increase in knowledge of others, to increase in love for God, to increase in love for others, and on and on. The more that someone knows God in his word, the easier, easier it is for us to love God and for us to live in light of his commands. And the same is true for our love for others. To truly love others we must first start with an increasing knowledge of God, increasing knowledge of his word so that we know how to best love others. But knowledge on its own is inadequate. Even the best attempts to love others can be misapplied if someone isn't also wise and discerning. And so Paul prays that the Philippians would not just abound in love coupled with knowledge, but also coupled with discernment or coupled with wisdom. A friend once told me, Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Uh, Wisdom is knowing never to put it in a fruit salad. That's what Paul is referring to right here. He's referring not just to knowledge, but also to wisdom. Paul wants the church to realize that love requires discernment. You can't truly love someone if you don't know how to apply that love into their life. Words spoken with the best of intentions can also, uh, can oftentimes be the most hurtful for those who are grieving, for those who are dealing with trauma. And so Paul says that in your increase in love, in your increase in self sacrifice, in your commitment to others, that this would be coupled with an increasing knowledge of God and an increasing discernment of how to love Others. The last two verses of this passage tell us why. They tell us why we should love, why should we pray for our love, why should we pray for the love of others to abound more and more. First, in verse 10, abounding in love create, creates right living right now. It creates right living right now. Paul prays that the Philippians may be able to, quote, approve what is excellent. He doesn't want the Philippians to just be okay with a lackluster life of faith. He wants them to live the best form of faith that God calls them to. He doesn't want them to just be okay with a sterilized version of Christianity. He doesn't just want them to live or be okay with the status quo. He prays that their love and their knowledge and their wisdom would grow and grow and grow, that they would know what is best, and then they would pursue that right living right now is a life that passionately pursues God and the best that God has for you That's the first thing not only does abounding in love create right living right now it also prepares us for the return of Christ that's what Paul mentions here as well. Paul tells us that cultivating this selfless love will create or cultivate fruit uh, the fruit of righteousness it will create in, in each and every one of us fruit of righteousness. And as we become more and more like Christ, as we increasingly reflect Christ in our love and in our knowledge and in our discernment, we will increasingly bear the fruit of righteousness that we will please our master on the final day. And finally, this abounding in love ultimately brings glory to God. God receives glory when our fellowship in the church is more than just skin deep, but it is centered in the gospel, and it abounds in steadfast love, and so as we begin this new chapter in our congregation's life, I pray that we would commit ourselves to being a people of genuine fellowship, that we would be a people committed to gospel fellowship, that we would recognize that the key to genuine fellowship is the centrality of the gospel and a growth in love, and so this week Seek out ways that you can center your relationship with other Christians in the church on Christ, on gospel fellowship. Start small. Commit to having one gospel fellowship-centered question or conversation each Sunday in place of just small talk. Just start small. Let us be a people that are united, not just on, on what, we, uh, what we have in common, but specifically on the one thing we have in common, the gospel, and let, us unite, uh, let it unite us with a burning passion. Consider also the ways that you can pray for one another, the ways that you can pray for the priority of gospel love, not just for you, not just for your family, but for this congregation as well. Let us be a people that actively pray for one another, for the glory of God, and for the good of one another. The key to genuine fellowship in the church is the centrality of the gospel and a growth in love. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the gospel. We thank you for how it unites us together. And God, I, I pray that we would be increasingly focused on the gospel. That it would saturate our thoughts, our hearts, our conversations with one another. That we would continually abound more and more in love. That we would continually be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That you would be glorified in the day of your return. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.